Hello again, and welcome to the SB Nation College Football Recruiting Podcast. This is Bud Elliott, your host and the National Recruiting Director for SB Nation. Uh, we call it this because everybody else took all the creative names for College Football Podcasts and the blatant SEO play was just right out there. So, uh, format's going to stay the same this week. A lot of news to talk about. A lot of reader questions. I think we got over 30. Don't believe I'll be able to get to them all, but we'll try to, uh, to get as many as we can. As always, we start with mentioning the big commitments of the last week, just so everybody can kind of get up to date on that and uh, and stay uh, stay up upbeat about what what happened. Uh, Austin DeCoulis is, is a really good offensive lineman out of Texas. Uh, he had been favoring LSU for a long time. When I spoke to him back in the was either the Houston or the Dallas regional, I, I forget they all kind of run together in my mind now with all the recruiting travel I do. But when I spoke to Austin uh, in Texas a couple months ago, he he just was effusive in it is praised for for Les Miles for the whole staff there uh, at LSU. Uh, Les Miles being on the hot seat, you know, almost being fired last year, doesn't seem to have phased him at all. And uh, and he wants to go and be a Tiger and is is going to be a really really good one. LSU also picked up a uh, a very impressive JUCO receiver in Stephen Gidry. He's out of a junior college in Mississippi, so some immediate receiver help next year for the Tigers assuming he sticks with this commitment. Uh, pretty nice week there for LSU. Also, get well to Mike the Tiger. Uh, I'm married to an LSU uh, graduate, so uh, obviously my Facebook feed, uh, be it her family, is very much populated with uh, Tigers uh, wishing Mike to get well there. Their mascot, Mike the Tiger, has, I guess, a rare form of cancer, which, which really kind of sucks. I've, I've seen that cage and uh, seen Mike in there. He seems to like that pretty good. Uh, Connor Blummer, the quarterback out of Pearland, uh, Texas, uh, goes to Texas A&M. Interesting dominoes falling in the SEC West. Uh, we have Old Miss as the only school, the only big-time school that had offered uh, Connor at that point. Then Texas A&M comes and offers, and three days later, they, they get the commitment. At that point, uh, you get the uh, you get the Texas A&M now, now has their kid. They're still actively recruiting other players, but what does Old Miss do? Now, Old Miss goes, and they offer uh, Miles Brennan, who's committed to LSU, a Mississippi kid who, whose coach had complained on Twitter about L, or about Old Miss not offering their kid. LSU actually has a much higher rated and better quarterback than Miles Brennan in Lowell Narcisse. So, so now Brennan has a choice to estimate. Does he want to go and be the number two to Narcisse at LSU? And, of course, he can't think like that. He, he has to think that he has a real shot to go play. But if you're realistic, you got to think Narcisse is a better player then you are probably, I know athletes are always very confident. Or do you want to go and, and go to Ole Miss where you'd probably be the only quarterback commitment in the class? Now, one thing to remember here is that while you have to battle Narcisse at LSU, you'd also have to battle uh, Shea Patterson at Ole Miss for probably the next two, three years, uh, probably three years because he's not that big. I don't know if he's necessarily a, an early NFL guy type, even if he does really work out like his five-star rating suggests he might. So some interesting uh, goings on there. In the SEC West, well, I know we'll track that. Uh, and on SBNation.com, I have my quarterback timeline tracker with our really cool uh, quarterback dominoes graphic on there that everybody can, can take a look at and just see just how involved and, and, and interrelated all this quarterback recruiting really is. Finally, uh, Miami landed DJ Dallas, who is an outstanding athlete from Georgia. Uh, Mark Richt is, is doing a nice job there at Miami. And DJ is a guy on social media who is very uh, motivated to recruit others and, and, and to, to praise the U and, and to preach all the good things going on at Miami, including uh, Miami, I guess, is going to 
become the 14th ACC program to finally have an indoor facility. So, and that, that's an important thing down there because of how much rain we get here in South Florida. You can't not have an indoor facility. Other major recruiting things we wrote about this week on SB Nation, uh, we surveyed a bunch of recruits and, and 31 of them responded uh, of like the top national kids about a whole bunch of different topics. Uh, Chick-fil-A is their favorite fast food, which I, I can't blame them for. Chick-fil-A is pretty good. Also a nice uh, regional recruiting advantage for teams in the Southeast, which is, uh, I know, where most of y'all listeners are. And then Clemson, uh, surprisingly, did extremely well uh, in terms of how they connect with recruits, uh, what, what coaching staffs they like, what, what teams they feel are on the come up. Uh, so, so some nice work there by Clemson. And speaking of, of teams in the ACC, I wrote about this week, a little diversion from recruiting, how the Pac-12 is, is kind of starting to look like the ACC of old, right? You have USC, which is a, a traditional power, the only team in the last uh, quarter century to have won a national title uh, that's currently in the Pac-12. Everybody's waiting for them to be back. Everybody wants to declare how back they are. Well, that sounds an awful lot like how Florida State was in the end of the uh, the, the decade there. you got a team that, that almost always plays great defense. They're tough. Uh, they, they come very close to making the playoff or, or come close to to playing for the national championship game, they could just just lose one fewer game, and, and you just in the back of your mind, you just don't have a faith that they're going to be able to score enough points. Well, that kind of seems like Virginia Tech, and I went on and on and made comparisons. Some of them fit pretty well, and some of them are, are kind of loose and silly. But the, the overall point is, the Pac-12 missed the playoff last year. They, they really don't have many elite recruiting teams right now, and if you look at this. Their odds to make the playoff this year are, are really bad compared to their conferences. That doesn't mean they won't make it, but it does mean that Vegas sees them as, as the clear uh, odd man out of the conferences. And, and if you do it two years in a row, you got to start thinking, who, who is really going to rise up? Uh, is USC finally going to get back and, and be that marquee team that the Pac-12 so desperately needs? Is Oregon going to kind of get out of this little uh, mini slump that they seem to be in on the recruiting trail and, and, and maybe on the field? We'll see. I, I'm a little reluctant to call them having a slump on the field yet. They just had a down year after going going to the playoff uh, two years in a row, and uh, or going to the playoff and, and then having another had a pretty nice season the year before that. I don't know though. Like the Pac-12, I I feel like is a good league, but it just it's not going to get the respect that it might deserve if the strength of the Pac-12 is in the bottom and in the middle. It, it, Respect in college football for conferences is overwhelmingly given at the top of the league and not at the bottom uh, and, and not at the middle. If, if you have two really good teams and a bunch of teams that just simply aren't all that good, uh, you, your league's going to get a lot more respect than you might think. So just something to, to watch for there. Uh, I, I would point to the 2013 ACC, which was really not that great of a league. You had a very dominant Clemson team, and then you had one of the all-time most dominant Florida State teams. And then the rest of the league wasn't great, but because you had those two top teams, everybody said, oh, the ACC is pretty legit this year. It, it, you get a disproportionate amount of credit uh, than you probably should for having a super elite in your league. All right, now on to some uh, reader questions. Uh, solicit reader questions on Twitter or on SBNation.com. On Twitter, I'm at SBN Recruiting, and you can always hit them up there. I usually favor them throughout the week, and then I try to answer them at the end of the week for this weekly podcast. Uh, and I do hope you all have a safe and happy Memorial Day uh, whenever you travel and, and remember the folks who, uh, you know, who, who paid the ultimate price for us to be able to have these freedoms. So, good question here. 
what are the hardest schools to recruit at? Uh, how, how do service academies identify recruits? And what if an FBS team was in Alaska? So th this is kind of a fun out-of-the-box question here before we get to some of the more serious stuff, which I know you all probably came for. Uh, but, hey, you're, you're listening to this whole thing, right? Uh, the hardest schools to recruit at, I feel like, are the schools that are in the, the mountain time zone because there's not a lot of good football played in those time zones. I'm talking about schools in, in New Mexico. Um, there's some decent ball played in Arizona. But if you're in Idaho or a Wyoming or if you're in Colorado or if you're in New Mexico, those, those type areas, even if you have some money and some resources, it's really, really hard to get enough good players there to turn your fortunes around, unless you're willing to take big-time chances uh, on you know, character and, and, and grades and stuff like that, like maybe a former community college in Idaho does. Um, but they don't get too happy when you talk about that. Uh, you also have to be really, really good at scouting, and it takes a long time to change your reputation to where other kids who normally wouldn't go to, go to see you uh, finally will, will go to take notice. But I, I generally think it's mostly related to your geographical resources. And in that, in that mountain time zone, there's just not a whole lot of people and there's not a whole lot of like good high school football being played, so that makes it very tough. Um, you know, people would say, "Hey, up in Boston College, there's not a lot of good football played in Massachusetts uh, or, or New Hampshire or Delaware," and that's that's certainly true. Uh, but being at their Catholic university, they're able to go uh, and, and go to, to places like like New Jersey, where there's a lot of good Catholic league ball play and play there. You can go to Cincinnati, where you have the the, the Catholic leagues there, uh, and, and that that really helps when when you have a religious school. Like Boston College is able to do that, um, you know. So th th that's that's probably a good answer on that. How do recruiting service academies identify recruits? Uh, well, they they look for a couple things. They, they look for guys who are very good high school players, who have leadership experience, uh, who have very good grades, and who are undersized. They know that if you're a really good player with grades, with leadership experience, and you're actually like FBS sized you're probably not going to go there unless you have some sort of uh, family connection to the military, which is something they also try to look for. Uh, but it's, it's one of the toughest things to do in sports. Uh, and, and I know, I know we've interviewed some coaches before about that on SB nation and, and you guys can go search for that. It's, it's not easy. Uh, but if you can find, let's say a, a six foot offensive tackle with great feet. Well, I, I can't use a six foot offensive tackle in, in major college football. I just, He's not big enough. But at, at, at Navy, where they're going to cut block a lot of times, and I, I got to have him scoop. I, I got to have him get out and pull a little bit. I got to have him. The, the main thing I'm looking for with him is not his length, but rather his feet and his aggressiveness. Well, I may like him. Not to mention that the size requirements, not only is Navy good, and, and these service academies good at using under undersized players, Many of their fitness requirements uh, in the military require them to have undersized players. You, you just can't be 300 pounds and, and pass a lot of these military distance running things. It, it, football is a game of explosion, and you have to really be conscious of that. Uh, but at the same time, you have to recruit guys who can, can pass these conditioning tests uh, that the military has. And, and the, the two skill sets are really not the same. And so the, if you look at your, your Venn diagram there, they got to look in that, that kind of center category of, of finding the guys who have enough explosion but can also pass and, and enough bulk, but who can also pass their conditioning stuff. All right, the final question here, or first batch, is uh, 
what if an FBS team was in Alaska? How would that work? I, I think this is a great question. It's fun. It's something that made me really think. And uh, the, the first thing I, I think about is how does your population compare to the population of college football in terms of how it looks? Uh, so I pulled up the racial demographics for the state of Alaska. Uh, 69% of Alaska is white. 16% is American Indian or Alaska Native, uh, 4% is Asian, and uh, let me see, two or more, two or more races, 5.4%, or uh, and and only three and a half percent of the population is uh, Black or African American. Uh, that does not compare to any college football team out there, really, at, at all. That's it's, it's it doesn't. Uh, those racial demographics are typically much different than that. So already you're kind of behind the eight ball, uh, which, and not to mention, there's not a whole lot of high school football played in Alaska. Uh, so as a recruiting guy, my first thought is, is typically about recruiting. It's my job to kind of think, hey, can I find a recruiting angle in this? Uh, and yeah, so I found a recruiting angle here. It would be that you would have to go out of state for almost all of your talent. And, and that's tough. Uh, there's another, there's several schools that have to do that. One of them is named uh, Hawaii, and Hawaii, I think, is the best comp for this because of how far away it is from, from the mainland. You, you can't just have a high school coach drive you over to Hawaii. You pretty much have to fly. I guess you could take a boat. but uh, So that that's that's a problem right there because that means it costs a whole heck of a lot of money for people to come visit your school. Now, of course, they could take official visits to your school in the fall, but recruiting starts earlier and earlier every year. And this is a common refrain that fans of the Big Ten and Big Ten schools have. And it's that, hey, we, we need to have an early signing period and change when kids can visit. Because as of now, they're, un they're unable to afford to visit. Like kids from talented areas like the South are unable to afford to visit Michigan and Ohio State and those type of schools before the official visit period. Which means that those schools are significantly behind the eight ball when it comes to establishing relationships with these kids. Hawaii, you would have that effect times like a billion, right? Because it, it, it not only like is, is it tough to get to, it's really not a place a lot of people want to visit. It's very cold. It's very different than the, than the uh, environments that most kids grew up in, e even a lot different than kids in, in the closest U.S. states, like a, a Washington or an Oregon or, or Montana. It's, it's just extremely different. Um, I, I don't think you could have an FBS program in, in, in Hawaii, I just, or excuse me, in, in Alaska. I, I'm just not sure it'll work. At least with Hawaii, people actually want to visit there. And, and in fact, Hawaii struggles with people trying to uh, game the system and get free vacations out, out there. Um, and so they're very cognizant of, of who they bring and who they invite on those official visits. And the official visits are paid for by the school. All right, the next question here, and uh, this is a little bit more serious. Uh, by a little bit, I mean a lot more serious. Uh, Baylor. Last week I got asked about Baylor and the effects its scandal, uh, sexual assault scandal would have on recruiting. And I said I wouldn't comment on that until the, we could see sort of what the actual results of the investigation were. And it looks like we have those results now. Uh, came out on Thursday. Baylor released a 13-page findings of fact from its greater investigation, uh, and it, it found, uh, in addition to what we already knew, which if you didn't know, uh, multiple Baylor players have been convicted of sexual assault. Uh, 
oftentimes these assaults have been uh, against other Baylor students. Uh, Baylor's Title IX compliance department was just a mess to the extent that it even existed. It certainly was underfunded, understaffed, and undersupported both by personnel and by uh, uh, spirit. And uh, in fact, the report indicates that uh, Baylor's coaches were directly involved uh, with interviewing and investigating uh, the victims, uh, victim blaming and uh, convincing them not to go forward with claims, and in one case, uh, retaliation. This is just all kinds of ugly. Uh, I mean, uh, there's so many angles to this and, and none of them good. I, 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 if there's some good in this, it's that Baylor is making some changes and that hopefully will implement them and just do better in, in making its campus a, a safe place for women. Um, I, I, that's, that's my hope on that. Um, so I'm getting a lot of questions yesterday and today about the fallout in, in recruiting. Uh, and if you didn't know Baylor fire, fired up Riles, they may be yet firing more staff. Uh, we don't know it, as of this taping, nobody's been named the interim head coach officially yet. Uh, Baylor, and I'm going to have a bigger article coming out about this, I think, on Tuesday. So look for that on svnation.com. Uh, but the, there, there could be some significant fallout from the recruiting. First, uh, something that I – and I don't want to make this seem callous. Recruiting pales in comparison to the, the much greater issues at Baylor. But this is a recruiting-focused podcast, and um, – and we waited a day to tape this so that we wouldn't just be, hey, let's talk about recruiting right when all these things break. Uh, Baylor has been a, a decent recruiting team under Art Bryles. Not a great one. They started out terribly. They did a great job of identifying players in Texas. They took advantage of errors by Texas and Texas A&M. Uh, and then they, they managed to slowly climb. Recruiting, if you're a fan if you're a fan of, a, of a Blue Blood, this is a really good thing. If you're a fan of an upstart, recruiting is depressingly static. You can have great year after great year after great year and see your recruiting only change just a little bit. And it's just because, yeah, kids might be impressed with what you're doing, but at the same time, are there parents? Are there high school coaches? Because i tell you what, parents and high school coaches, most of their memories of Baylor are Baylor being terrible. Baylor sucked all throughout their lives. Baylor's only recently been decent. Uh, they, they've been a fringe top 25 recruiting team over the last four years. Uh, my numbers have them signing 18 four- and five-star commitments over that time. Uh, that's not in the top 25 uh, for that. I think they have them at, at 27th. Uh, 20% of their signees in the last four years have been four- or five-star recruits. So, again, not a real high number. And, and people ask me, why don't you think Baylor is a contender for the national title? basically every year after they go out and they smash all these these cupcake teams that they play. And I said because I know that the last basically 20 years indicates that you have to recruit more four- and five-star players than two- and three-star players to win a national title. It's why I also don't take Michigan State's national title stuff seriously. Because they just don't bring in enough raw talent to do that. Now maybe if it, I'm sure somebody at some point will break through and the playoff will probably help in some regard, because it gives more access. Well, you do it most likely have to, have to face and beat two elite teams as opposed to the old BCS. But the college ball season is long, and you need all that talent for the most part, unless you just get an insane injury luck to survive and get through it. 
so when we talk about Baylor's recruiting, is it going to fall apart? I think there's a strong chance it could fall apart, but but to what? It's not like Baylor's falling from a top 10 recruiting team. They've had some very nice seasons, although you know, a lot of their wins have been over cupcakes. They, they play like the worst schedule in major college football. Uh, I don't think they're going to be, I don't think they're going to go back to the, the Baylor that, that, you know, won zero or one big 12 games per year. I think Baylor will still continue to make bowl games. Uh, but look, Baylor, I, I don't think is a better job than Oklahoma or Texas or TCU or arguably Oklahoma state. It's got a nice new stadium. It's still in Waco, which is not a very cool place to hang out or, or to live. Uh, that's not necessarily all that attractive of a place. What was starting to attract all these kids to Baylor mostly was all the winning that Baylor was doing. And if that goes away, if the architect of that Art Browse, he's gone. Baylor already lost a, a commitment yesterday from a four-star tight end. I spoke with Baylor's uh, four-star quarterback, Kellen Mond, who attends the IMG Academy in Bradenton. He said that he wasn't going to make any decision on his recruitment until – he had a chance to speak with his parents uh, who were back in San Antonio. He's, he's taking his finals right now. But Ohio State and Auburn are on him hard, and it would not uh, – I'd be very surprised if he stuck in Baylor's class. Um, I don't think Baylor's going to sign a top uh, – I don't think they'll sign a top 40 class this year. And that's in the bottom half of, of the, the Power Five. Um, it's, it's going to be a big hit for Baylor – I think that Baylor's also going to take a probably to take a long time um, to make their their new head coaching hire. They're, they're going to vet it. They're going to make sure that the guy has a very squeaky clean background. My guess is that it won't be somebody who's connected to the Art Bryles coaching tree, or at least not directly connected to it, because you, you want to kind of distance yourself from the heinous acts that happened there. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's going to really hurt their recruiting. I also want to say this. I, I've read multiple articles that, that have said they've called this a wake-up call for college football coaches or a new standard for college football coaches. And I know college football coaches are, are, are not perfect, and a lot of them do, do some bad stuff. But I, I, know, I know college football coaches. And the, the reaction that I got and the reaction that I know other reporters got, who I think do a good job and they talk to coaches, was one of shock when they found out that Browse's staff and him were talking to the victims directly and trying to influence them and make them not bring cases. So I, that shock tells me that this is not something that's going on at a bunch of other universities. Can, can we sit here and say that Baylor is the only school that had this problem? No. But I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that Baylor is, is if not the most extreme example, it's, it's damn close. There are certainly coaches who, who try to help players get around crimes, and, and there are coaches who probably get too involved and stuff like that. But this is just a really extreme example. It's not exposing what some seem to think is a norm in college football. And, and this idea that, that fire, firing Art Baylor, firing Art Browse over this has created a new standard it is to me is nonsense. Any coach who does this, I really believe, would be fired at any university. Jimbo at FSU, Nick Saban at, at, at Alabama, Les Miles at LSU, Urban Meyer Ohio State. If they did this, they would be gone. 
I don't care what you recruit. I don't care how many statues or titles you have. This is so far over the line. It, it's not just about, hey, you had players on your team who raped people, which is horrible enough in itself. But it, it's about the specifically here that the what really made this extremely over the line compared to all the other situations we know about was the involvement of the coaches directly with the victims to try to, to cover things up or try to make them not pursue their cases, not reporting it up the chain of command as they're required by law to do. Uh, so, no, I, I don't think this creates a new standard in college football. I think this is an existing standard to which the conduct just happened to 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 uh, uh, to, to go past. And and it's, it's a standard I think every school has and, and has had forever. Like, I... Or not forever, perhaps, because it, social media has certainly changed things. But let's say over the last 10 years, I really don't think you could have gotten away with this at any school. I I, I just don't. Maybe I, I'm naive in that. Maybe some coaches will take and, and think, uh, you know, hey, I really need to make sure I report this up the chain. Even if I'm not involved, even if I'm not trying to, to to mask anything, I'm not trying to change anything, not trying to get in contact with, with the victim. Uh, if I hear about something, I need to report it up the chain. Maybe, maybe that'll happen, and that's a good change if that is indeed what happens to this. But as far as it being a new standard in college football, no, I, I think this is just uh, blatant content, blatant conduct that just really went way above and beyond any standard. And, and uh, one of my colleagues today uh, said that Art Bryles was the most obviously fireable coach uh, that he's ever seen in his time covering college football, and, and I agree. All right, more Baylor questions here. Uh, will Baylor's 2016 recruits be able to get out of their letters of intent? This is a really good one. Um, Baylor signed eight four- and five-star recruits last year. Some of them have already enrolled early, uh, but overall in their 22-member uh, signing class, some have not. Let's let's wind back here to the, the Lane Kiffin situation uh, with Tennessee. And if you recall, Lane Kiffin at Tennessee, along with uh, some other coaches, were at Tennessee – uh, when USC job came open and Lane Kiffin was leaving for USC, and you already had a bunch of players on campus, with you, and what happened? They told these kids, "Don't go to class because if you go to class, you can't follow me to USC and be eligible in the next year." Let's say you're, you're in a letter of intent right now, right? You could break that and go enroll at another school. Now, you wouldn't be eligible that first year, but you could basically redshirt that, and you could still have four years to play four. If you go to class at Baylor, and then you try to transfer, you would still need to set out another year, right? So that means you would have three years to play three. The advantage, if you're trying to leave Baylor right now, of not going to class is basically getting a whole other year on the field. You're probably going to have to redshirt either way, as far as I understand it. Uh, there were some rumors today that, that uh, some of Baylor's players and some of Baylor's commitments were talking about how they were not going to uh, play for Baylor. I could not find that on, on social media. I looked pretty hard, uh, but it's just it seems to be, at this point, unconfirmed rumor, and so I don't want to report that. I'm not going to write anything on that. But I am going to be looking really hard uh, come, come the 31st, which is what, Tuesday, uh, to see if Baylor's kids ha- have enrolled. In classes, because if they not, it, it it likely tells you that um, that they're maybe looking to go elsewhere and, and they're willing to to take that that redshirt freshman season. Uh, but as far as the question of 
will the NCAA let them out without penalty or anything? No, I, I don't think it's going to happen at all. Uh, that, that would open up a Pandora's box that I'm sure the NCAA does not want to deal with. Uh, who stands to benefit from Baylor's horrific situation? Um, hopefully, uh, future potential victims who are now going to be better protected on campus, but in a recruiting sense, uh, Texas, I think, will, certainly. Texas A&M, if they have a good season, uh, TCU, Oregon, or not Oregon, excuse me, Oklahoma, basically just the regular suspects who compete against Baylor. Baylor's not signing that many kids that other programs want and would actually accept. Um, so I, I think this is more of a negative to Baylor than it is a, a net positive in recruiting for any other uh, any other program out there. Uh, next question. Doesn't the Baylor example show that the NCAA needs to start issuing play abatement seasons of penalty uh, for such conduct? And, and I would say no. Uh, this is just not, to me, an NCAA issue. Um, I, I I have a lot of mixed feelings about how they handled Penn State as well, uh, as far as the NCAA getting involved there. I do not think the NCAA is going to come in here. I don't think that's something they want to get involved in. This is a, a legal matter, a educational matter, a criminal matter, a federal law matter. It's really not an NCAA matter. Uh, it's, it's hard to argue that these kids were uh, receiving improper benefits or, or, or I don't want to call them kids, they're, they're adults. Uh, these players were receiving improper benefits or anything um, illegal from the school other than maybe covered from criminal charges. Uh, so no, I, I don't think the NCAA needs to be involved in that. And I would actually direct you to read uh, Dan Wetzel of Yahoo Sports, he had a good thing on that today about why not only should the NCAA not get involved, but also why it won't. Again, that's Dan Wetzel. Check out his piece on Yahoo Sports from Friday about Baylor and the NCAA. Uh, next question, who are you predicting to reach the playoff this season? I, I really haven't sat down and thought about this, but I'm going to go just off the top of my head here. Uh, Alabama, Clemson. Ohio State, and uh, I guess TCU um, or, or Oklahoma. I think the Pac-12 gets left out, and I think that um, I'm just not convinced that we're going to get two schools from any one league, uh, with, with probably LSU and FSU being your your next two out in, in some order, just in my head right now. I'd be interested to hear y'all's thoughts on who you think is going to going to win and reach the playoff. Uh, why hasn't Michigan State been able to capitalize off a college ball playoff appearance? Their current class is fourth in state on 247 Sports. Well, uh, I said earlier in the show that for fans of non-blue blood programs, and Michigan State is certainly not a blue blood in my mind, uh, they, they're they kind of always been like one of the outsiders that tries to overachieve. Recruiting is just very static. It's just hard to change people's minds in general about your school, even if you're, you're kicking ass on the field. And Michigan State certainly has been. Uh, so that's, that just makes it tough right there. Now, look, they're not going to have the fourth best class in the state of Michigan. They'll, they'll have the second best class in the state of Michigan, and they'll continue to do well. I, I don't think they're really dropping off. Harbaugh's not shutting him off from talent. I mean, he's beating him in recruiting, but he's not he's not you know, letting them get no talent in recruiting. Michigan State uh, has, has brought in a top 25 level of recruited talent over the past four years. If I look at my metrics here, uh, in fact, last year, they signed nine four- and five-star players, which is almost double what they had signed in a recent year. So I would argue that Michigan State has seen a little bit of a bump. Uh, they're Over the last four years, 
of the players they've signed have been blue chips, uh, which is very impressive. I, I think they know, now that Michigan seems to have its act together under Jim Harbaugh, that the stuff that, that, that flew uh, with with Brady Hoke is probably not going to work as much against Michigan. You do have to step up the recruiting, and I think they are. It's, it's way too early to judge teams on the recruiting efforts this far in the season, unless it's a continuation of a previous trend. Um, which brings me to my next question. Why has Washington been able to recruit well lately slash better than Oregon? So I'll pull up my numbers here again. Uh, when you're talking about difference makers, uh, Oregon over the last four years has signed 28 four and five stars. Washington only 23. Uh, so that's five more. It's about one more per class for the Ducks. Percentage 34 to 26. So a, a decent little gap in there. Not an enormous one. Uh, the difference of about probably six or seven spots in the recruiting rankings. If you look at it, uh, but last year, Washington did indeed sign more than, than Oregon. I think Oregon has lost some of its magic. I think the the, the shine's kind of off that program a little bit once Chip Kelly left. Uh, Mark Helfrich is just not the same guy. And, and I'm not saying Chip Kelly was a dynamic recruiter. He really was not. Uh, but they, they seem to have a little more juice on the recruiting trail back then uh, than they do now. It hasn't been a huge drop-off. The, the main difference is that Washington really has his act together under Chris Peterson. And we're getting to see under Chris just how good of a recruiter maybe he is. Uh, at Boise State, it was almost all about scouting and finding kids who other schools wouldn't touch uh, due to grades or, or other concerns and, and finding just diamond in the rough after diamond in the rough. And, and clearly Chris Peterson is one of the best uh, scouting coaches and, and has one of the best scouting staffs in the country. Just look at what he did at Boise. Not only the wins in a weak league, but also the, the NFL talent that he's churned out. So, does Oregon have better facilities? Sure. Washington's in a more in a more talented state, I'd argue. And you know, neither have amazing history. Uh, they're, they're, none of them have won national championships in, in recent memory. Uh, I mean, Washington had one you know, 25 years ago when these kids' parents were, were, were teenagers. But, uh, you know, that... They, 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 they're both good programs and are both recruiting okay. Oregon seems to not be off to a great start this year after kind of a lackluster finish last year, and, and we'll monitor that. But it, it's just too early for me to say that there are, are big, big trends and big problems that need to be addressed. All right, uh, updates on the visits by the t- five stars from Texas to Ohio State. Love the show. I appreciate that. Uh, Again, I, I think Jeffrey Okuda is, is really feeling Ohio State. I, I think Ohio State has a great chance to sign him. Uh, Baron Browning, who was a former uh, Baylor commitment, a, a five-star type linebacker out of Texas. I, I don't like Ohio State's chances with him nearly as much. Um, I, I think other schools there are, are much more in play, um, including Texas and including LSU and, and Alabama and schools like that. Um, but – Okuda is not from Texas. He's a New, he's a New Jersey kid, and, and he's always liked Ohio State a lot. Um, I I think Ohio State has a great chance to get him. All right, uh, what do we got now? In which draft will we see more Texas players being selected in the early rounds? Well, I think it might be the next draft, actually, right? Isn't that the draft that Malik Jefferson is, is going to be eligible for? He's been there two years, right? So I'm going to say the 2017 draft is when some of that elite talent in that first class that Charlie Strong signed uh, is really going to come through and, uh, and and pay off in the draft. And, and once that happens, I'm sure Texas will, will get all over uh, 
showing just just how much success they're having in the draft again after this kind of weird drought they've had, which is I think mostly Mac Brown's fault. All right, next question: Will Alabama's recruiting level ever be attained by another program in the country? Are there any even remotely close? Uh, and then related question: How does Alabama keep getting number one classes? Do you think the streak will continue this year? All right, so I'm going to answer the second one first. How do they keep doing it? Uh, and do I think the streak will continue? Yes, I do. I think Alabama will sign the number one class again, uh, as they have for like the last six years. I think if you bet against them, that's kind of silly. Uh, how do they do it? Well, let me see. They have the best facilities in college football. They have by far the best coach in college football. And I think I would argue, I mean, the best coach in the last three or four decades. Uh, so that, that helps a lot. Uh, they have no pro sports in the state. So, that sport is treated like a pro sport, and you are treated like a god if you go there. I mean, you're, you're revered. It, it's it's a very different feeling. Uh, the and I, and I went there uh, for law school, and and I went to Florida State for undergrad. And the difference in terms of fanaticism about the program was was shocking even to me. It, they they made FSU fans look pathetic. In comparison, it just, it was the, the level of fanaticism, the level of live and die by that. I mean, people parked their RVs in our law school parking lot on Wednesdays before a game until they told, they were told they had to move and they made a rule like you couldn't park your RVs there until I think like Thursday evening or something. And, and, and some people got mad about that. It, it's just a, a very different culture there and one that makes football number one, two, three, four, ten. Uh, I, I, you know, people don't, don't care about basketball and baseball there on, on, on the most part. They, they really, there's kind of just one sport that matters, and, and it's that. Uh, so that, recruits certainly are, are able to sense that when, when they get on campus. I, I, you can't convince me that they don't. Um, so, uh, and they also play in the SEC. They, they turn out uh, an insane number of draft picks. Uh, I, I don't think anybody's turned out more draft picks during the time that Nick Saban's been there. Um, I, I don't think I missed anything else. Uh, so, will it ever be attained by another program in the country? Yeah, sure. I, I think it could. I mean, look, Ohio State is, over the last four years, they've only signed seven fewer four- and five-star recruits. I mean, Bama signed 77%. Ohio State has signed 70%. That's not that far off. I mean, LSU's next, followed by Notre Dame and, and Florida State. Um, that it's, it's not crazy to think somebody could catch them. Now, will anybody ever have a run like this again, where, where they are just number one in recruiting for, I mean, a, a seven, whatever, however many years it is now? I I don't know. That, that seems tough. Uh, you'd have to have a coach who is as good as Nick Saban stay at a school for that amount of time and, and really and have it be a school that has all those factors. I, I don't know. I don't know if I'd bet on that. Um is anybody even remotely close? Yeah, I, I think I just said Ohio State. Uh, you could do it at a place like LSU, where where LSU football just means a boatload to people, um, and you're in a, a pretty talented state. Which, by the way, uh, Alabama has, has seen a lot more talent in its state over the last, uh, I don't know, decade or so than it, than it previously did. So that, that's also been a contributing factor here. Uh, also, they recruit nationally and, and do really well at that. At some point, Nick Saban's run will end, and, and then that'll be a really interesting question to pursue if, if somebody can can consistently topple them. But, uh, I mean, 76 blue, 
76 four and five star signed in a four year period is is just insane. Um, that's that's just not normal. Um, you, know, you, you compare that to like compare that to Notre Dame. That's that's nineteen more in 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 a four year period. It's essentially an extra whole class of elite players. That's that's silly. That that's why I, I kind of think putting anybody else at number one. Uh, even with the quarterback questions, which they have uh, and have had for like the last billion years, and it hasn't really stopped them from winning national titles, is kind of silly. Uh, question: Internal issues at Auburn? Question mark. I uh, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm going to ask for clarification on that, like what you want to know about that, or what your specific question is. That's just really open ended. Um, what coach or school does social media the best? What goes into making a worthwhile account? Uh, does it really matter to recruits? I, I think that it, it does matter to recruits. You have to reach the recruits where they are. At SB Nation, we try to reach our audience where they are. As a recruiter, your audience is the recruits. So, yeah, it, it does matter. And you do have to go uh, to, to find the kids uh, and and reach them where they are. And they're, and they're on social media quite a bit. The schools that are really good at it. I think Clemson is a really good school with this. Um, they have a dedicated social media department. That's all they do. And it's not just one or two guys. It's a bunch. College Game Day did a good feature on that. You might be able to find that on ESPN or on YouTube. Uh, what goes into making a worthwhile account? By the way, I think I think Brett Belima is a, a really uh, good guy on social media because he he seems he seems genuine on social media. I don't think recruits like when it's just somebody else running the coach's account full time uh, and, and they never tweet. Interesting things. You, you have to let recruits inside your life a little bit and let them see who you are as a person to be good on social media, I think. Uh, you also have to have to do things that connect with them. Like Lane Kiffin tweeting all those bitmojis. That's brilliant. Kids are loving that. They're, they're laughing their butts off because Kiffin's the only coach doing it. And they're like, hey, he gets me. I, I could talk to Coach Kiffin. That matters. Uh, and then also I think infographics are big. And, and people... You can put all kinds of qualifiers on her to make your school look good, but uh, you know I, I've said before, uh, "Built by Bama," right, is, is a slogan that Alabama uses on almost all their their recruiting stuff, and it's just, "Hey, here's all the jerseys of guys that we are in the NFL," and and Florida State does this too with their uh, Knowles Football League NFL type thing, and and Miami does it as well with their Pro Cane series, and 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 a lot of schools do well there. I, I think Clemson does a really good job. With the social media, they also have a fairly young staff that does a good job connecting with those kids. Uh, next question: What would be the ceiling for USF slash UCF if it if it was added to the Big Twelve? Could their recruiting jump into the top twenty-five? Uh, I would say no, not initially. I, I don't think they would recruit in uh, the top twenty-five initially uh, because there's only so much talent in the state, and I don't think kids would suddenly start picking. USF or UCF over the, the good out-of-state recruiters that include uh, LSU, Clemson, Bama, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, Ohio State, Michigan, th- those type of schools that come down and also mine Florida for talent. Eventually, could they become top 25? Yeah, I, I think it's possible. Uh, but I, initially, I, I think that their ceiling, and probably for, for quite a while, would not be a top 25 ceiling. How do you think Miami's recruiting has changed with Mark Rick at the helm? Uh, good question here. I've addressed this a few times, I think, but but I think that uh, Mark Rick has brought more credibility to Miami than Al Golden did, and I think specifically 
with high school football coaches, this matters. Uh, high school football coaches were able to kind of initially they, they tried to bully Golden and then he kind of blew him off. And then he kind of came back and started offering a bunch of kids who, you know, maybe shouldn't have Miami offers. And then in the, in the final year, I believe personally, and people have told me this, but uh, I think it's their opinion too, not necessarily fact. And I don't know how you could, uh, <clears throat> I don't know how you could possibly establish this as fact, but Miami took a, took a lot of kids who were not Miami quality in an effort to sort of leverage that against their own firing and basically say, Hey, if you fire us, we're going to lose this number of kids, right? Which which makes sense uh, to do. I think it's a very smart job security move. Now, it didn't work because the season was just terrible and, and Clemson just, you know, beat the, beat the tar out of them on their home field and basically made their ass quit in front of their own their own fans. Uh, and, and so that, that was uh, detrimental to their getting not fired. That's probably not great English there. But uh, I think Miami's taken a big class so far this year, and I think it's a nice class, but I, and I don't think it's loaded up for non-football reasons like I think the, the initial Al Golden class was. I think Miami has a good shot of landing a top 15 type class, but they've they got to win something on the field. Uh, they, they've really not been good um, in, the, uh, in these kids' lifetimes, at least what they can remember their lifetimes. You know, Miami was very good in the early 2000s, but a lot of these kids were born in the year 2000 or the year 1999. And if you're one or two, you're not going to remember Miami's title team. Um, you know, your memories of Miami are very little of the Orange Bowl, uh, almost all of Pro Player or Joe Robbie Stadium or whatever the heck they're calling that thing now, of, of bad crowds, of losing three, four, five, six games a year, of the Nevis Shapiro stuff, uh, the... The 30 for 30 documentaries is really uh, you know, kind of like a, a, a history lesson for these kids because most of them didn't grow up with this. And that, that's actually a really nice recruiting tool for Miami. But if, if you win something, it could definitely start to help and and, uh, and kids will actually believe that Miami can be good again. All right, uh, by what point in the cycle do early flawed recruiting rankings become more accurate? And this is, a, this is a, a topic that I beat every year because everybody seems to forget every year. So uh, early on recruiting rankings are not very good. They're done by the recruiting services solely to appease subscribers and readers because people want to know how good their recruits are and they want to know early. And the problem is we as a recruiting industry, and I don't rank kids. I've got a general idea of how good a kid is, but I don't have a big ranking think up there in SB Nation, uh, like the other four major services do because they have a lot more employees than I do. Uh, the problem with ranking them so early is that it's a very incomplete sample set. You're pr pretty much having to rank them off their sophomore year if you do it early on, uh, and then you slowly add in their, their, their junior year performance. Kids are all growing, and they're growing at different rates, and so it's not like you're able to, to, be, uh, to look at something and say, hey, this is... Uh, you know, these kids are all exactly the same age, they're all exactly the same growth rate, and here's how they are. So it's very important that you be flexible and dynamic and be willing to admit mistakes that you made early on and not suffer from confirmation bias. Um, because that's, that, that's the thing that exists in these recruiting rankings. The question is, when does uh, when do they become more accurate? I, I generally think by the fall. It's when they become more accurate because at this point we've had a chance to see all these kids in camp and you're seeing without their pads on 
which is, is not something that um, you know people like sometimes. They, they want to have the pads on, and football is a game that's played in pads, and yada, yada, and, and I get that. But seeing these kids under Under Armour shirts, you are able to tell who's bigger, who's wider, uh, you know, who who has, has has good mass, who has bad mass, who's able to move around quickly, that, that type of stuff. Because I've already looked at their film from their junior year. Uh, so by the end of the summer camp season, that data and that input combined w- with their, their junior film, I think is when it really starts to get better. Um, and then the second real period where I think that you see a lot of changes and where it gets better is, is like six months later when they come to the, the all-star games in January and you're able to see them again, you could see who grew or who grew, who got better, who got worse, that type of stuff. Um, and, you know, you've also talked to college coaches more and more throughout this whole time. And they ask you, hey, have you seen this kid? Yeah, I've seen this kid. Have you seen that kid? All, all this other stuff. Um, you know, I, I it, it gets a lot better. If I had my druthers, I would probably not. I, I'd wish recruiting rankings were not available this early on. But it, it this is a money-making industry. And if you don't have recruiting rankings early on, people can't get hyped up about these kids that you're getting commitments from 30 months in advance. All right, uh, if you've listened this far, you get the treat, and that is the old Miss talk. Uh, i got a lot of questions about this, so uh, I'm just going to kind of talk about this and not answer the questions, and hopefully the questions are answered during my talk about Old Miss. Uh, first, I want to say a couple things. The report came out on Friday. Old Miss charged with a good number of violations. Most of them are, are ones we already knew about. Laramie Tunzel stuff, uh, providing illegal transportation for kids, essentially giving them like multiple official visits, paying for their meals. Uh, loaner cars, paying for uh, hotels or places to stay. Uh, ultimately, not that much money in violations. Uh, Old Miss uh, self-imposed some penalties, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But, uh, you know, it, it, it it's not really surprised anybody. I think cheating goes on at all of the major schools that, that go for, for the best recruits. If you are a school without any kind of winning tradition or impressive tradition or elite level facilities, uh, you know, like Old Miss, and you land a bunch of these recruits, you're going to get a lot of eyeballs on you. And that's just the way that works because there's less excuse or less reason for an elite player to go to Old Miss. Let's compare Old Miss to Alabama. All right, one sends, you know, gobs and gobs of players to the NFL and actually wins national titles and competes for national titles. Old Miss does not, and especially not when some of these elite kids were signing back in the day. They weren't. And so a lot of eyeballs kind of went up like, huh, Ole Miss, which has never done a damn thing in these kids' lifetimes, is suddenly uh, suddenly landing these four and five stars. And it especially piques some interest in your out-of-state schools. If you buy kids from out-of-state, and luckily for Ole Miss, the allegation that they actually bought anybody uh, with big-time money is not in here. But if you do that, you're going to have a lot of eyeballs coming on you uh, because schools like that or schools in other states do not take too kindly to you going and, and, and trying to one-up their offers to their kids in their own backyard. Uh, another couple notes here. Number one, cash is king. Do not, uh, t- do not use Walmart gift cards. Use cash. Don't give hotel rooms. Give cash. Let people make their own reservations and their own names with the cash you gave them. Don't, don't do stuff like that. Just use cash. Don't use loaner cars from dealerships because they have those temporary tags on them. And it looks pretty obvious that, hey, why, why do you have a car with a temporary tag 
for like a whole year. That's not a good look, even if it's multiple cars, which is also something that the compliance is probably going to notice. Um, use cash and stop texting people about cheating. Text messages are, are records that can be kept. Phone calls are much less so. So don't do that. Like I, I don't know. I feel like, like I've said this about a billion times on Twitter, the best coaches use cash and they don't get caught because they use cash. Other coaches are, you know, it's not like like crime families are all of a sudden uh, using text messages and stuff. Stop. They, they still pick up the phone and call. If you're going to do this, use your burner phone, which I know a lot of you coaches out there have because when I talk to you, you have numbers that are, are registered in locales that are nowhere near where you've ever lived or coach. Um, you know, I, I knew a coach who now coaches an SEC conference school who uh, had a California number. And as best I could tell, he had never lived in California and had definitely never coached in California. I know you guys got burner phones. Use them. Call somebody. If somebody wants money bad enough, they'll pick up the phone and accept a call. You don't have to text about it. Um, so those are kind of your general things there. Stop texting. Use only cash. Uh, and I'm, I'm in favor of kids getting paid. I'm cool with it. Like, these kids, if they played any other sport, specifically a white sport like baseball or hockey, nobody would, would give a damn about if they were getting an education or not or if they were getting paid. They'd be totally cool with it because you could be drafted right out of high school and get paid for your labor, which obviously has great value because these schools are making you know, $30, $40 million a year. Uh, so that's, I guess, my take on that. Uh Got some questions about how much this is going to hurt Ole Miss's recruiting. Uh, I don't think it's going to hurt them that much. Now, they did self-impose some penalties here, and I think this is where we have to take a look at and, and to assess just how bad these penalties are. Uh, their recruiting class of 16, 17, and 18, 2016, 2017, 2018, are capped at 22 each instead of the normal 25. So if you, if you look at that uh, – they're basically having to operate at about 85% of recruiting capacity for those three classes, one of which they've already signed, obviously. Now, that, that does hurt um, because that those are those are nine scholarships or nine kids over three years that, that you can't bring in. Um, let's assume Ole Miss's rate of about 40% blue chips stays steady. Well, that's about four blue chip kids that, that they couldn't bring in over that period. Now, of course, that, that math doesn't totally work because these kids who are not going to be getting scholarships are more likely their fringe three-star prospects or your, or maybe your fringe two-slash-three, who you know, sometimes they work out and they become great. Uh, if you have these reductions, one thing it does cause you to do is pursue certainty more as opposed to potential. You have fewer wild cards, and, and if you miss on a kid, it, it really hurts you more because you have fewer kids who can potentially help to make up for that kid busting, um, and so that means you might take a few, you might take fewer chances on kids with a lot of potential, but also potentially a high bust rate, uh, and and that, that could certainly hurt you there. All right, sorry about that. Got a phone call, uh, so I had to hit pause real quick. Um, you know, I think uh, I think Ole Miss recruiting is going to be fine. It's not like they were really competing for national championships anyway, so it's not going to knock them down a ton. I think they're going to continue making bowl games. Uh, maybe they don't go to as many New Year's Six-type bowl games. Um, one thing I'm going to be watching is how much the additional Laramie Tunzel stuff hangs over their head because that that's the one thing. And Ole Miss asked for a, a delay in its hearing here 
uh, to investigate the Tunzel stuff that came out on draft night. It, and I don't think anything's going to come of that. But if it does, that's something that could additionally punish the program. The NCAA could also levy uh, additional sanctions or penalties against them. Three per year is not a huge deal. It, it's it's a deal in that you're not closing the gap on Alabama within the next two, three years. And I know you beat Alabama, but you also lost to Florida and Memphis. Uh, and in the previous year, you lost four games. So, And you lost to Arkansas, too. forgot about that. Uh But yeah, I don't think you're going to make up the gap on Alabama because without those scholarships, or make up the gap on LSU. Um, but they're not going to get killed over this, in, in my opinion. It, it just it's going to hurt them a little bit. It, it's it's like slightly more than an inconvenience, but it's not crippling. They also have to play uh, at 83 scholarships in 2016, 81 in 2017, and 81 in 2018. Uh, which means that they can't just solve this problem by taking a bunch of transfers or something and allowing those guys to come in and, and supplement the scholarship thing. So they, they're they limited both in how many they can bring in of recruits, but also what their total roster size is. Uh, and so that'd be a reduction of two in 2016 and then uh, four in 2017 and four in 2018. Not, not added on, just each year. All right, uh, that's it. I'm going to cut my grass and then going on vacation this weekend. So hope everybody has a, uh, has a great Memorial Day weekend. And uh, if you have any questions for the podcast, uh, be sure to uh, hit me up on Twitter at SBN Recruiting or on SBNation.com. We are almost at an hour here. And uh, I'm sure what we'll talk about next week. Hopefully we'll talk about uh, less scandally topics. Uh, but if, if they come up, we'll, we'll have to talk about them. So have a good one, everybody.